The Radical Wesley, Chapter 11, The Wesleyan Synthesis. In the preface, I noted John Howard Yoder's question to me many years ago. Given his radical views, was Wesley inconsistent in remaining within the established church, or does he embody a higher synthesis? In this book, I argue that Wesley does indeed represent a dynamic synthesis. According to some critics, John Wesley never had an original idea in his life. He just borrowed from others. Even if true, this would hardly solve the riddle of Wesley. His genius and originality lay precisely in borrowing, adapting, and combining diverse elements into a synthesis more dynamic than the sum of its parts. The Bible says salvation is all of grace, not of works. It also says we are to work out our own salvation. That faith without works is dead. Wesley's way out of this paradox was through Galatians 5-6, faith working through love. This became a favorite passage and theme. True faith shed God's love abroad in the heart, which became the fountainhead of all inward and outward holiness. Wesley's genius, under God, lay in developing and nurturing a synthesis in doctrine and practice that kept biblical paradoxes paired and powerful. He held together faith and works, doctrine and experience, the personal and the social, the concerns of time and eternity. This synthesis speaks profoundly to the church today. This chapter examines the key elements of the Wesleyan synthesis, noting how these tie into the life and experience of the church, divine sovereignty and human freedom. Basic to all else in Wesley was his tenacious hold on both the total sovereignty of God and the freedom of human beings to accept or reject God's call and to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in the work of salvation, both in believers personally and in the world. Wesley's starting point was not the so-called decrees of God, nor the logic required to resolve theological paradoxes. Rather, it was what Scripture affirms, God is sovereign. Besides Him, there is no other God. All salvation depends on His initiative and working. But humans, even though sinful, still have a measure of freedom. And if they turn to God, they can be His co-workers in the local and cosmic concerns of God's kingdom. Wesley stressed the image of God as well as the Word of God. Human creation in the divine image was fundamental for Wesley because it meant a deep, ineffable similarity between the human spirit and the Spirit of God that even the tragic effects of the fall could not destroy. Salvation was still possible, but only by God's grace, because sin put men and women under such bondage that they could never freely turn to God. Like Gregory of Nyssa, and other early teachers of Eastern Church, Wesley saw the will as essential to the image of God. God had given women and men a will, either to serve Him or to rebel. Now, because of sin, the will was under bondage. People chose to do evil rather than good. Salvation, therefore, meant restoring the image of God and freeing the will to do God's will. By grace, men and women could will to serve God. Thus, the highest perfection in Christian experience is to serve God with the whole mind, heart, and will. In a passage typical of many others, Wesley says that true Christianity is the love of God and our neighbor, the image of God stamped on the heart, the life of God in the soul of man, the mind that was in Christ, enabling us to walk as Christ also walked. The key to Wesley's skill in stressing both God's sovereignty and human freedom was his doctrine of grace, particularly his accent on prevenient grace. 
On their own, human beings cannot take the smallest step toward God, but God has not left us alone. An unconditional benefit of Christ's atonement is that God maintains the human race in a savable position. God's grace is prevenient, that is, it goes before, Latin provenire, to come before, anticipate, us, giving us the capacity, if we will, to turn to God. Yet even this turning is aided by God's grace shed abroad universally in the world by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. John Calvin spoke of common or general grace, that blessing of God in the world which explains how even depraved persons can accomplish commendable, if not morally good, works. But due to Calvin's doctrine of unconditional election, common grace plays no part, finally, in God's plan of redemption. By contrast, Wesley saw prevenient grace as the first step in God's redeeming work, even though people could, and most would, reject this grace. He saw God's grace as preventing or coming before, accompanying, and following every person. Thus, God is sovereign, and man and woman are free. In Colin Williams' words, with the doctrine of prevenient grace, Wesley broke the chain of logical necessity by which the Calvinist doctrine of predestination seems to flow from the doctrine of original sin. Because of his emphasis on human freedom and the universality of the atonement, Wesley has often been considered an Arminian. But this is so only in a qualified sense. Methodists come to the very edge of Calvinism, Wesley said, one, in ascribing all good to the free grace of God, and two, in denying all natural free will and all power antecedent to grace, and three, in excluding all merit from man, even for what he has or does by the grace of God. As George Croftsell noted, Wesley, in his sermon Salvation by Faith, goes as far as Paul, Augustine, Luther, or Calvin ever did, or could go in pressing to the limit the exclusive causality of God in man's experience of salvation, as well as in any and all provisions of redemption. Taking Wesley's whole system into account, it is something of a distortion, actually, to speak of Wesleyan Arminianism. We could as truly speak of Wesleyan Calvinism, remembering that Arminius himself was, in most points, a Calvinist. Wesley was as fully conscious as the earlier Reformers were of God's grace, but he had a deep optimism of grace that formed the foundation for his emphasis on the universal atonement, the witness of the Spirit, and Christian perfection. He saw God's grace so fully abounding that one could not set limits on what God's Spirit might accomplish through the church in the present order. People who don't fully understand Wesley at this point have sometimes called him semi-Pelagian or even Pelagian. That is, they accuse Wesley of teaching some form of works righteousness, that justification comes through our own efforts or actions. Wesley strongly denied this. His emphasis on the prior function of God's grace, illustrated in the quotations above, fully clears him of such charges. Roger Olson's apt comment about Arminianism applies fully to Wesley. Contrary to confused critics, classical Arminianism is neither Pelagian nor semi-Pelagian, but it is synergistic. Arminianism is evangelical synergism as opposed to heretical humanistic synergism. Wesley's dynamic view preserves an important and hopeful role for the church. It is optimistic as to the moral transformation of human beings, the restoration of the image of God, made possible by grace, 
and it sees the church as the instrumental means for promoting redemption in personal experience and in society. Wesley's view takes the church seriously as an agent of grace in the world. It therefore speaks to the contemporary need to build a more radical and biblical ecclesiology, and especially a more biblically faithful community of believers, doctrine and experience. Because of his double accent on both divine sovereignty and human freedom, Wesley focused on Christian experience. He looked for moral transformation in believers' lives, demonstrated by their behavior. Thus, Wesley stressed both doctrine and experience once again, faith working through love. If faith didn't produce moral change, including good works, it wasn't true faith. Thus, also Wesley's concern with sanctification. Regeneration began and enabled the process of sanctification. So every believer was morally obligated to press on to perfection. Justification and sanctification went together. Wesley said of the Methodists, quote, that as they do not think or speak of justification so as to supersede sanctification, so neither do they think or speak of sanctification so as to supersede justification. They take care to keep each in its own place, laying equal stress on one and the other. They know God has joined these together, and it is not for man to put them asunder. Therefore, they maintain with equal zeal and diligence the doctrine of free, full, present justification on the one hand, and of entire sanctification, both of heart and life, on the other, being as tenacious of inward holiness as any mystic and of outward as any Pharisee. Unquote. Wesley's oft-repeated stress on both inward and outward holiness is evidence of this balance of doctrine and experience, an inner experience of God in the soul which does not result in one's doing all the good you can, is inherently suspect. Wesley's concern for sanctification simply shows he really believed that doctrine and experience go together. A man and women do not truly believe the gospel without a moral change that enables them to live the gospel. Faith not only believes, it works in both senses. This balancing of doctrine and experience shows itself also in Wesley's dual stress on reason and experience. At the high tide of deism, Wesley stressed that faith was rational and reason was its handmaid. And even when criticized as a mad enthusiast, he still insisted on the conscious sense of God in the soul and on the inner witness of the Spirit. This balance emphasis gave Methodism a strong ethical sensitivity, but it also underscored the important role of the church. Wesley knew the Christian community was either the environment where God's grace turned sinners into saints, or else a cold, lifeless shell where newborn believers died of spiritual exposure. Wesley would join those voices in our day calling for the recovery of such a balance. Experience and Structure This leads to the aspect of the Wesleyan synthesis with perhaps the greatest potential impact for the church today. Wesley saw the vital link between experience and structure. Perhaps no one in church history was more keenly aware of the relationship between Christian experience and appropriate nurturing structures or was so successful in matching church forms to church life. Certainly, he was more successful at this point than Luther in Saxony or Calvin in Geneva or even Zinzendorf in Hernhut. Wesley's system of societies, classes, and bands in large measure formed the genius of the discipline, growth, and enduring impact of Methodism. To these were added many other structures, including schools, dispensaries, and loan funds for those in need. 
The Methodist system grew out of Wesley's keen awareness of the social nature of Christian experience, the balance of the person and the community. As early as 1729, a serious man whom Wesley sought out told him, Sir, you wish to serve God and go to heaven. Remember that you cannot serve him alone. You must therefore find companions or make them. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. Wesley followed this advice for the next 60 years, always avoiding solitary religion. This was at the heart of his reservations about mysticism. When Wesley spoke of social holiness and social Christianity, he was pointing to New Testament koinonia. Christian fellowship meant not merely corporate worship, but watching over one another in love, advising, exhorting, admonishing, and praying with the brothers and sisters. This and this alone is Christian fellowship, he said, and this is what Methodism promoted. We introduced Christian fellowship where it was utterly destroyed, and the fruits of it have been peace, joy, love, and zeal for every good word and work. The great instrument for building this quality of community or fellowship was the Methodist system of society, class meeting, and band. For Wesley, the class meeting was an ecclesiological statement, integrally linked to sanctification. In Wesley's view, if believers were really serious in their quest for holiness, they would band together in small groups to experience that level of community, which is the necessary environment for growth in grace. Students of Wesley and of spiritual renewal often discover or rediscover the relevance of Wesley's practical structures, particularly the class meeting. It is ironic that many books on Wesley deal only briefly with the class meeting, even though Wesley himself saw it in many ways as the cornerstone of Methodism. Many who have advocated Wesleyan theology through history and today have forgotten this practical small group structure and thus have tended to over-individualize Wesley's social concept of sanctification and to lose the secret of much of the spiritual power of early Methodism. Richard Lovelace is surely right in his supposition that the demise of the class meeting in large measure explains the decline of Methodism. Referring to the class meeting, Lovelace comments, it is startling that a strategy as obvious and effective as small groups could be discovered and widely used in recent history and then apparently lost until its modern rediscovery in popular religious movements. A generation of formal Christians intervening between awakenings appears sufficient to erase them from the church's memory. The implication for today's church is obvious. The recovery of some functional equivalent of the class meeting with its intimacy, mutual care and support, and discipline is essential. Such rigorous structure naturally goes against the grain in our lax, individualistic, live-and-let-live society. But this is precisely why it is needed. Talk of discipline, discipleship, and responsible Christian lifestyle seldom gets beyond mere talk until folks make the kind of serious covenant commitment to each other which provides the structure for space-time follow-through on professed beliefs and shows that believers are willing to ratify their commitment to Christ by commitment to His body. Only thus do we begin to understand in practice the truth that we are members of one another. Ephesians 4.25 the discipline and rigor of the class meeting were no less scandalous in Wesley's day. Wesley saw, however, that such covenant structures were essential if Christians were to make a successful stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to be gospel leaven in society. But people today won't make such costly commitments, people say. Yet people do commit to athletic clubs, 
sports teams, lodges, and other social groups that capture their interest. They make time for them. So at heart, the issue is not time or willingness to commit, but priorities. In any age, when Christian values are in near total eclipse, only a close-knit countercultural expression of the church will have the spiritual and social power to speak a gospel word to the dominant spirit of the age. History shows that an infrastructure of ecclesiola groups of some sort is indispensable to sustained countercultural witness. The Charismatic and the Institutional Wesley's balance between the charismatic and the institutional elements in church life and experience has surfaced at various points throughout this book. Some of the practical implications of this aspect of the Wesleyan synthesis were discussed in the last chapter. My point here is to stress that this dual emphasis fits into the larger picture of Wesley's understanding of the church and Christian experience. The curious thing about early Methodism is that it was a charismatic church within the institutional church. Many point to Methodism's separation from the Church of England as sure proof of the inevitable failure of Wesley's theory and approach. But it is not at all clear either that the final outcome was inevitable or that eventual separation means failure. Look at the historical circumstances. They are important. Here we face three facts. 1. Wesley was never expelled from the Church of England. 2. He never left the church or permitted Methodism to do so. And 3. The Anglican Church never gave Methodism any kind of official status. Had these circumstances been different, the outcome would likely have been different. Since Wesley was never kicked out of or disciplined by the Church of England, despite his rather extraordinary innovations, he was able to develop his views and practices in a basically Anglican way. And since the Methodist societies were never given official status within the Anglican Church, they developed independently under Wesley, rather than being officially recognized as an evangelical Anglican order. It was this, of course, which eventually led to Methodist separation over Wesley's dead body, and which left Methodists as ecclesiological orphans, Wesley appeared to have hoped, at least early on, that some kind of official recognition for Methodism would be granted by the Anglican hierarchy. If this had happened, the history of Methodism, and probably Anglicanism, would have been much different. The unique features of Wesley's concept of the Church thus trace largely to the peculiar position of Methodism within Anglicanism. If Methodism had arisen within the Roman Catholic Church, it might have become a recognized order, Wesley perhaps seeking an accommodation with Pope Benedict XIV. Conversely, if Methodism had been born two centuries earlier within Reformation Protestantism, it would likely have been forced to become a separate believer's church. It will always be argued from both sides that Wesley's institutional charismatic synthesis is fundamentally inconsistent and impossible. I argue, rather, that it is part of the larger Wesleyan synthesis. We don't have to claim that Wesley was totally consistent over the course of half a century, and pertinent questions can be raised at various points. Nevertheless, Wesley's fundamental perspective is essentially sound and insightful when viewed biblically, historically, and sociologically. The seeming paradoxes in Wesley's views are due not to a fundamental inconsistency, but rather to the paradoxical nature of the church in a sinful world. This makes a totally consistent systematic theory of the church difficult, if not impossible from a human standpoint. 
added to this was Wesley's aim not to work out of systematic ecclesiology, but rather to understand and explain Methodism as it grew in response to the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. This was Wesley's approach, openness to the Spirit rather than bondage to theory, yet submission to the authority of the Word, both written and incarnate. Balancing the charismatic and institutional dimensions of the church, yet with the primary accent on the charismatic, this was Wesley. The Wesleyan synthesis does not flee from history into pure existentialism, but keeps the present creatively tied to the past. Methodism sought to be neither above history nor shackled by tradition. This was the basis for Wesley's seeing Methodism as ecclesiola in ecclesia, the charismatic community not entirely unstructured within the institutional church, not entirely devoid of grace, present and future salvation. Finally, the Wesleyan synthesis balances present and future salvation. No one can accuse Wesley of underemphasizing eternal blessedness with God. In fact, Wesley's understanding of the kingdom of God may at times appear too otherworldly and too static. But Wesley's constant stress on sanctification or Christian perfection, centered in the present reality of the life of God in the human soul, and was a progressive dynamic concept. He reasoned that if holiness could come at death, God could just as surely enable holy living now. By stressing all inward and outward holiness on biblical grounds, Wesley kept Christian experience from retreating into a private inner world, divorced from the problems and sufferings of daily life. Holiness involved making a present stand for the righteousness, the justice, mercy, and truth of the kingdom of God, and especially bringing the gospel to the poor. We noted in chapter 7 how Wesley combined the emphasis of eschatological hope and final judgment, present and future salvation, and the evangelistic and prophetic dimensions of the gospel. Because salvation is for eternity, Wesley was an evangelist who preached the wrath to come. Because salvation is for the present, Wesley preached the poor and worked for social reform. This too is evidence of the Wesleyan synthesis, and it sets the task facing the church today.